WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. You can listen to us uh, online, goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, we got Mike Utrix on the show today. He is a managing editor at Jacobin Magazine. He's also the co-author of the book Bigger Than Bernie uh, that he co-authored with Megan Day. Uh, we had Megan Day on the show probably about a month and a half or so ago. And uh, I actually reached out to them uh, when they did a sort of a talk about that book for DSA in New Orleans. How's it going, Micah? Going good. Yeah, we wanted to do a, a talk actually in New Orleans, but yeah. for obvious reasons that ended up not happening. But we were we had big plans to come there. Uh, I haven't been there in over a decade, so it would have been nice. But yeah. I think we're gonna have to put that on hold for a little while. Yeah, we'll I mean, make it happen when 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 the world gets hopefully like some semblance of you can be in the same room with one another. Right. I mean, good news on that front. Seemingly, the New Orleans tourist industry is still thriving. Much to our chagrin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. You should see, like, what Bourbon Street looked like on, like, Labor Day and stuff like that. It's just, I mean, people are going to go. Like, if you're going to if you're gonna give all these signals that everything's cool and fine and okay, yeah. you know, to exist in, in this COVID world, then people are going to take it and go with it's it. Pretty, you know? It's pretty stressful. Like, I even resorted to, like, just making up a bunch of lies on Facebook about a bunch of poisonous snakes being in the French Quarter. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, man, it's crazy. Yeah. They're everywhere. By any means necessary. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we want to talk to you a little bit a bit about uh, your book, Bigger Than Bernie, that you wrote with uh, with Megan that we alluded to earlier. Uh, so I guess maybe give a sort of general description and talk a little bit about uh, things like the the dirty break, which is something that you um, describe, and also how the Bernie Sanders campaign led up to this. Right. So I had the idea for this book upon realizing that there were basically no books about Bernie's campaign mm -hmm. uh, in 2016 and the impact that it had on American politics that were out there. Um, and I was kind of like, well, I guess it's going to fall fall on me to write this because this is a really important <laughs> development in American political life. And so uh, I, I brought on Megan Day to, to write it. And we we wanted to, I mean, if you read the book, it's called Bigger Than Bernie. And the, there's only really like the intro and the in the first chapter are actually about Bernie. And mm -hmm. the rest is about the, the movement that has been uh, sparked uh, after Bernie's uh, first campaign and that will hopefully continue to be uh, growing in the wake of his 2020 campaign. Uh, so uh, we just go over what has happened on the American left. I, I am somebody who very strongly believes that, of course, the rebirth of the socialist movement of various kinds of protest activity, both within and without the labor movement. Uh, all of that has come about for multiple reasons, right? Structural reasons, uh, you know, an economy that, that looks the way that we all know that it looks, you know, with stagnating wages and ever expanding inequality, as well as racist police brutality and all the other awful things that have happened. Uh, in recent years uh, and decades. So there, there were these structural reasons that, that I think the Bernie Sanders campaign took off in the way that it did. But in the United States, there's never been any shortage of those kinds of upsurges, right? Like 
even uh, in this country that is talked about as being the supposedly conservative center right country look at any you know over any period of years there are enormous protest movements there are upsurges in people you know whether it's the black lives matter movement whether it's the occupation of the wisconsin capital in 2011 and then occupy wall street or the anti-globalization movement their anti-iraq more movement all of these things are, are indicative of movement activity happening mm -hmm. uh but what often happens is, is that there are these giant upsurges and then they sort of like fizzle away uh, without finding an organizational or, or, or sort of like institutional political form. Uh -huh. uh, and Bernie's campaign was one that showed that all of that kind of energy, that kind of left progressive energy that we can point to as, as, as being at the heart of numerous uprisings that have happened in recent years and decades, uh, that, that energy actually found a, a kind of political cohering around the Bernie campaign and showed that it was actually possible to run an electoral campaign in a, in a way that talked about democratic socialism, talked about basic social democratic goods like Medicare for all and free college for everybody, and not get laughed off of the political stage. No. Uh, and because he showed us that on the national level, I think that's that led to what uh, we now can identify as the rebirth of democratic socialism in this country. I mean, it's it's not it's not complete rocket science like this guy ran as a democratic socialist and got millions of people really excited about his vision and he called it democratic socialism so they're like oh well if if bernie sanders is a democratic socialist then maybe this democratic socialist stuff sounds pretty cool and they <laughs> google democratic socialists and what do they find they find the democratic socialists of america uh, and that you know becomes the organizational home for so many people who are inspired by uh, the Bernie campaign, not to mention, obviously, all the other, you know, the, the Sunrise Movement and, and Justice Democrats and all the other many organizations that mm -hmm. we can point to. So um, we just talk about that dynamic, how Bernie, why Bernie matters as a unique historical political figure, uh, the sort of unique route that brought us to the point where he was running for president twice and, and actually catching on as, as, a, as a really credible uh, candidate, and then what DSA has been up to in the last four years since its rebirth, both on the electoral level as well as in the non-electoral, uh, you know, extra parliamentary, as it's sometimes <laughs> yeah. called, level like the labor movement and other kinds of organizing. And so we we wanted to just take stock of everything that has happened over the, the last four years, or the particular focus on. DSA and then give a kind of a rough roadmap of where we can go from here. Yeah, one of the interesting things, because uh, when we did a little bit of canvassing for Bernie out here, unfortunately, it didn't really get down to the point where we got close to the uh, primary. But uh, we, we would have get surprising reactions. And the place that, that I live is just a little bit west of Orleans and called the place called Jefferson Parish. It's pretty conservative. Like Steve Scalise is from here. Like it's the same congressional district that David Duke came from, who's like a you know white supremacist grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Like, but but we would have you know canvas for Bernie Sanders, and we would get you know our fair share of positive reactions. In fact. I probably said this one on the show. It comes to mind, but like some guy who only speaks Spanish, he didn't speak any English. He comes up and he, we had this like one of these cutouts while we we're canvassing for Bernie, and he's like, "Yeah, I want to take a picture with Bernie Sanders." It was, it was awesome. I mean, I, I remember me and my, me and Jeff were canvassing in uh, our hometown, and this guy kind of walked up and he was like, kind of like sneering a little bit, like ah, whatever. And he was like, kind of like there to like style on us. And then we started talking to him and he's like, oh yeah, I am on disability. And it's, it's like, well, isn't it hard to get your disability like 
like payments and stuff. He's like, yeah, you're actually, yeah, like it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. I mention it. Medicare for all actually helps everybody, doesn't it? Yeah, we actually like kind of drew this guy in, like even though he was ready to just like like just Tucker Carlson on us or whatever. Well, that's the promise of the Bernie campaign, right? Is that this these politics, which are important and were kept alive for many decades by people who were really like in the wilderness, and you you gotta like you know tip your hat to those people who are willing to stick it out through really bleak times to keep the the, the politics of, of socialism alive during that time. But for decades, it was seen as this marginal thing. And uh, Bernie was the one who who made an appeal on the basis of democratic socialism that could appeal to those kind of people, the kind of people who might uh, normally show up to, you know, uh, mock a bunch of leftist uh, protesters at, at whatever uh, event or people who are engaged in a certain campaign. Like he he showed us that class politics and, and social democratic politics and, and stuff like Medicare for all can actually catch on at a, an enormously popular level if the pitch is made in the right way and if the messenger is seen as somebody who's you know is credible to them in, in a way that bernie clearly was uh so you know that that is the the if nothing else i mean we should be extremely grateful for that just mm-hmm. like showing us that we, we don't have to be consigned to the wilderness we don't have to be uh you know just fighting the good fight because it's the right thing to do it's like no we're fighting the good fight because we believe we can win this fight in the long term and even though bernie lost obviously uh in case i need to remind anybody he lost twice uh he 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 really sort of like giving that spark to that uh movement is something that i i think we can't uh, overestimate the importance of i mean mm-hmm. we shouldn't we shouldn't overstate the extent to which we're winning we're obviously the world is uh still not a, a great place to be in right now in case anybody hasn't noticed right. uh, but like we we've been shown that like we at least have a a, a path forward uh, that, that doesn't involve like watering down our political program. It actually involves like saying, yes, we believe in these like big, bold ideas. And w- we know that other people agree mm-hmm. with us. Like average people agree with us on that agenda and we're going to fight for it. Yeah. yeah it's very the- interesting. Okay. Like the kind of response to these things has always just been like, Oh, who are these fools? Who are these young uh, babies who only love their cell phones or whatever? Av- avocado and, uh, toast eaters. Like, they just want to just make it seem like as clownish as possible just so they could like brush it away. Yeah. But like that actually like, I mean, it kind of dripped into the Democratic Party because and it's making everybody look bad because all the Democrats have done this whole election was like cover their ears and like blah, 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 blah. Just like so they couldn't hear all the stuff we were trying to say. Like, but I mean, these are facts. These are like issues that affect people on a great deal. And I think it's the problem is people don't see themselves in those politics. They see themselves in like the Fox news, like all these people that are just like thrust into their, into their view. And they, they're like, well, I guess that's me. Cause I want to be a tough guy who's self self-dependent and like not worried on government handouts, but like the opportunities for these people are not there. Like they're just getting styled on. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I find that's really sort of like interesting in, in these kinds of conversations as well is like, uh, and you propose a little bit about it in your book, um, like various strategies that could be taken to build off of the Sanders campaign going forward and sort of like what are the approaches that uh, we could take to kind of like move on after that campaign, you know, sort of, you know, ended or those two campaigns really. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of things to talk about here. Uh, You know, one on the electoral front is that we have a problem on the American left, a problem that we have been stuck with for a very long time and that has been debated by leftists for a very long time, which is what to do with the Democratic Party. Uh, And the the Democratic Party, 
is not the Democratic Party is not a home for working class politics. Like it is a, a the electoral vehicle through which unions have allied. You know, especially since uh, like FDR basically. Um, but it is not a workers' party in the traditional sense. Uh, and you know, certainly not at this point. <laughs> Well, I mean, it never was. I mean, no, no, no. The, I mean, like, like I, was, I was thinking more about like, like looking forward, like even, sure, like, it's, yeah. it, like, like, if it, it never was, and I definitely agree with that. And I'm not like making advocating for that strategy, but at this point, right now, in this reality, regardless of the history, it is definitely not that. <laughs> when when Kamala Harris was announced as Joe Biden's running mate, there were immediately a flood of headlines that were in like CNBC and. Uh, and other business press saying how excited Wall Street was. That <laughs> Dollar Biden signs had, in their eyes. <laughs> but yeah, exactly, that Biden had chosen Harris as his running mate because the both of them are staunch pro-Wall Street figures. They have been throughout their entire career. And if you had a real working class party or a social democratic party or a socialist party, uh, <laughs> Wall Street would not be excited <laughs> yeah. about you doing things. Wall Street would be very upset. Uh, about you, about you uh, doing things. The the uh, oh, the proper response would be: I remember I saw an, an issue of Bloomberg Business Week uh, when Bernie ran the first time, and like it was just like a, a, the fo- the cover was him, and it said something like, "I don't want your vote." And it was uh, like a message to the sort of like Wall Street types yeah. and the readers of Bloomberg Business Week, like, "I'm not your friend. I'm here to fight you, not to." to work with you so we're stuck with this problem of uh we have a democratic party uh that is is very friendly with wall street and with with certain segments of capital Mm -hmm. um but we don't really have much of another option at this point i mean this is the whole conundrum of american politics that we don't have a left-wing party and yet any attempt to create left-wing or working class parties uh is, is stymied by the fact that our system is uh extremely stacked against any kind of third party challenger. I mean, that's true on both the right and the left, by yeah. the way. I mean, you know, there, there are plenty of instances to point to, of you know, Republicans wanting to shut down libertarian candidates uh, and lock them out of the political process mm-hmm. because they want to guard their sort of monopoly on, on the right wing vote. Tom Frank just um, wrote a book on this, actually, didn't he? He wrote uh, The People Know. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, about, with it, but it's about the sort of populist party in the early, you know, the late 18th, uh, the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah, I haven't read the book yet, but people often point to that era as as a kind of decisive moment of when there we were we could have perhaps like created a a more uh, working class party, but for various reasons that mm-hmm. avenue was blocked. Um, but this this is as I said, this is something that socialists and other progressives have had to deal with for a very long time. Uh, and uh, the the two approaches to the, the problem have basically been people who say, okay, this party is not a, a, a party that I you know. This is the party of Wall Street. This is the party of of capital. The the Democrat Party is not my friend, so I want to go start my own party. And we all know that that hasn't really borne much fruit over the years. I mean, again, people have done noble work trying to create third parties, but uh, the deck is just so stacked at a, at a sort of systemic level against people doing that mm-hmm. uh, that that people often uh, just become marginalized to doing that. On the other hand, people say, okay, well, the Democratic Party. Not that great. I'm not a big fan of Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or whatever, but this is the only game in town. So I'm going to, you know, just put my head down and work in the Democratic Party. And there's a long history of people who have been, uh, you know, gone into the party with noble intentions, socialists and people who are trade union activists and others, but being pulled rightward by that party. 
Um, and so we talk in the book about uh, what, what has been called a dirty break, which is not a, a concept that we came up with, but as opposed to the clean break where you just say, you know, you, you wipe your hands, you're done with the Democrats uh, and you're going to go form your own party. The dirty break strategy says that basically the, 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 the path beyond the Democratic Party must in at least the short term and probably medium term go through the Democratic Party. And uh we, we have to sort of, uh, you know, heighten the contradictions that are within this party, because it is a party, you know, the, the people at the top and the top donors, you know, there are the Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's and the Wall Street donors and the, the Silicon Valley type donors and all, all those types, uh, the Harvey Weinsteins, right? Um, but then the base of the party is people who are, you know, African-American civil rights activists and environmentalists and feminists and, and union members. I mean, th th these are the people who make up the kind of foot soldiers of of the party, the average Democratic voter. And um, so at least with Bernie's campaign, I mean, this is not a strategy, this dirty break strategy that Bernie necessarily subscribes to or AOC or any of the other prominent left-wing people who have run within the Democratic Party recently. But they have kind of, um, I, I think at the very least, caused people to ask a lot of questions about what is going on with this party. Like Bernie is not saying, I wanna establish the dictatorship of the proletariat. He's saying, I want us to have a, a, a medical system that is, you know, free of the point of use for all people in the same way that basically every other wealthy country in the world has. By any and means yet, necessary. This is, yeah, and, and yet this is what the party does to shut it down. So, um, so yeah, we, we kind of propose a, a strategy for, for dealing with this really key conundrum that tries to avoid both the path of marginalization of going, you know, starting a third party tomorrow or... Uh, just going into the Democratic Party without any understanding of the need to really duke it out with the right wing forces in that in that party and 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 perhaps in the long term uh, need to break with that party when when the conditions are uh, right mm -hmm. uh, condition that would require a whole lot of other things to change but like that would be the long term vision is to actually start a real workers party in this country cool let I mean, me pause for station ID. I, you are listening oh. to whiv lp new orleans 102.3 this is good morning comrade uh we got scott and micah utrecht on the show he is a managing editor am i getting, I'm getting your title right Ma managing editor at jacobin uh, since i wrote the book i'm now the deputy editor deputy so, editor at, oh, at, uh, oh cowboy <laughs> <laughs> But we're talking about uh, the uh, his book uh, that he co-authored with Megan Day, Bigger Than Bernie. We're talking a little bit about uh, different strategies that, um, uh, specifically the Dirty Break, um, which is a strategy that you know leftists and socialists could take um, in terms of engaging with the Democratic Party. Uh, Scott, you have a question. Oh, I say I was gonna say like you're saying uh, the way to go through the Democratic Party it seems is like to just do work because as like this election has shown with uh, Biden just totally whiffing on like not doing knocking strategies and stuff like like he's not knocking any doors he doesn't have any like literature for his local people but like it seems like the Democratic Party just doesn't want to do the work like they want to get a candidate that can like hook into the mainstream and like do all these weird marketing concepts. They want to change the paradigm. They want to hook into the mainstream. They're renovating. They want to get the momentum. It's like just a bunch of marketing people trying to figure this out. And they're like, they don't understand that they have to like have people like getting people interested and like, like, you know, developing local like interest in government. Like I live in a small town and no one's interested in local government. Like, so the government just does whatever they want. Like, Oh, yeah, sorry. I have to say I'm 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 very disturbed by uh, the late the news over the last couple of days about the fact that the Biden campaign is not even 
engaging in a, a, a real ground game anywhere. I mean, you know, with the pandemic and the sort of abrupt ending of the Bernie campaign, I felt like we didn't get a full chance to discuss like what just what the hell just happened over the last, uh, you know, four or five years with, with these two Bernie campaigns. And one thing that clearly came out of it was a real small D democratic politics, right? Like if you got involved in the Bernie campaign, you were going to be out on doors talking to people about Bernie. Uh, you, you were doing this sort of like grassroots level groundwork to try to get people excited about your candidate. That was the only way the Bernie Sanders campaign could win, right? Is if you, if we had like uh, armies of people going out and, and talking to their neighbors and, and, and doing the stuff of, of, of small D democratic politics. And the Biden campaign clearly is just going the polar opposite direction right now. Obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic, mm -hmm. which poses a number of things that, you know, a, no, a number of challenges to uh, doing really door knocking and things like that. But other left-wing DSA type candidates or, or justice Democrats type candidates are still doing that. They're mm -hmm. still knocking doors. They're doing it with masks on and everything else, yeah. but they're still doing it. But Biden seems to have no interest whatsoever in doing that kind of small D democratic politics. And it's very worrisome. I mean, because that, that, that to me was one of the most exciting things about Bernie's campaign is like, we are also cynical about politics in this country. We think that the sort of the game is rigged uh, and we are right to think that. Uh, but then this guy said, you know, no, we're going to get back to doing politics in, in, in a way that is actually about democracy. And mm -hmm. it's actually about engaging people in their communities. And and Biden seems to be pulling the Democratic Party in the opposite direction. So uh, in addition to that, not being a particularly good way to win an election, probably, uh, it's also just a further hollowing out of our democratic processes that has me uh, mm -hmm. really worried. I mean, that, that kind of hollowing out of of democracy and of just the sort of like substance of American life, like social, the social character of American life and everything else is what led us to this point where we are, you know, atomized and separated from each other. And it, it helped give birth to the real noxiousness of, of Trump. And so I, I worry that Biden is just playing into that. It's so bizarre to me because like, it seems very much like the campaign, like, like developed in a boardroom because like everything that you see from them is just negative reinforcement. It's like, no, you can't have this. You can't have this. You can't have this. Like that's the opposite of what like the president does. I believe they says, call that the. Says, you I, have... I believe they call that the Klobuchar strategy. Yeah, <laughs> like he just says you can have anything, even if he's bullshitting and just gonna, like steal everything out their pockets. Like, but like, uh, like people locally, like as I've been realizing with this uh, Lake Charles hurricane that's not even being covered in the news, like people across the political spectrum are just sending goods and driving them down there from New Orleans. Like, like these are people that are interested in Bernie Sanders. And like my mom asked me to take a box of goods to like somebody's house to drop them off. And mm -hmm. like their mom was just there and they were like, oh, they already left, but they're going to go on another trip later this week. Yeah. But like, and she would identify even herself as like a conservative or whatever, well, you know, I think she's an independent. Yeah. Uh, She's very, very much like, you know, figuring things out mm -hmm. for her own self. Like most uh, people are, by the way. Yeah, because like the Democratic Party is just telling us what we can't have. Like you can't have Medicare for all. Sorry. Uh, maybe weed. Who knows? Chuck Schumer, get, Chuck Schumer like uh, he like raised that flag a couple weeks ago. Well, not if Biden gets his way, though, right? Yeah, I mean, Biden uh, is yeah. still, like, beating the drum of, like, uh, the, you know, I don't know, like, really, like, right-wing politics yeah. on weed from, like, 20 yeah. or 30 years the, ago. The no, weed, yeah, the come drug, on, man. The drug war. Like, yeah. seriously, he's, like, still in drug war brain. 
But like, yeah, I mean, th- th- these are the problems that come with not having a a, a real workers, you know, left wing party of our own. Is that you you <laughs> you end up getting stuck with people who are essentially right wingers. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 actual content of the Biden uh, Biden and Harris's own political record would be well at home in like a center right party in any other country. Uh, and and th- this is, I mean. Yeah, this is what happens when you don't have a real uh, outlet for those things. And so uh, we, we argue in the book that that, that is a really essential task for our uh, immediate and medium and long term future is, is figuring out how to how to deal with that. And, um, you know, there are some people who are, run as left wing candidates who have a real overt hostility to the Democratic Party, uh, which I think um it, to the extent that you, if, if you can win and get away with uh, be, being very, very, you know, em- emphasizing that you are independent of the Democratic Party, or even in some contexts like Shama Sawant in Seattle, the Socialist City Councilwoman there. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she is very much like openly hostile to the Democratic Party. Um, Seattle is a unique context, obviously, but but everywhere is a unique context. So the, to the extent that people can do that, I think they should, because it is a real problem that we are stuck with this Democratic Party. Now, somebody like AOC does not say, you know, I am not a Democrat. She basically says, I am the real Democrat. And all of these right wing neoliberal types are not the real Democrats. I have some disagreement with that. But she also says things like, if me and Joe Biden were in a different country, we would not be a member of the same party. And, Mm -hmm. you know, most Americans don't even think of that as a possibility uh, for their politics. It's like, oh, yeah, the Democratic Democrats are are the liberals, the Republicans, the conservatives, and this is, that's all there is. And that's just how it forever shall be. Mm-hmm. And she says stuff like that, that like really places the seed in people's minds. Like, oh, really? Like somebody like AOC is different from a, from a Joe Biden. Like maybe they could be in a different uh, organized political formation together. Yeah. Hmm, I've never yeah. really thought about that before. And I'm glad she's you kind of, go ahead, Scott. Oh, sorry. So she's kind of apolitical, but also super political in that way. And that like, everybody's always like, oh, she's on Instagram, like cooking food or whatever. But like, <laughs> Like she's trying to seem like a person instead of like a person behind a desk, like you're asking for something from. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the idea, the the, the thing about her saying that she like she kind of like takes ownership of the Democratic Party in a certain sense, uh, at least in the in the way that she, um, and that that she says like I'm the real Democrat, like you just said a moment ago, and I, I wonder if that's something that people find attractive or off putting based off of that. You know, is that something where, you know, you talk about the dirty break strategy and like if 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 she try even if she tries to define herself as that and she gets rebuffed, does that give sort of like a cost's belly? Like what if we get like, you know, thirty or fifty AOCs to just say, Okay, well screw it, we're out of here, you know? I think it all depends on the context. I mean, I know from my own experience canvassing for Socialist City Council members in Chicago and you knock on doors in Chicago, which is a one party town. We have 50, I mean, our, our uh, city council members are not nonpartisan, but like there are no Republicans. There are no self-identified Republicans on our 50 member city council here. And mm-hmm. when you knock on people's doors, people who are not particularly interested in politics will just say like, I'll, you know, you'll give your picture of your candidate and they'll say, are they a Democrat? And I say, yes. And then, okay, sure. Like uh, people, <laughs> people have cl- clearly, there are some people in, in, in some contexts that have a very strong sort of partisan identification with the party. If for no other reason that they associated it as like the guardians against the, the worst kind of barbarism of the, of mm-hmm. the Republican party. But then in other contexts, there are clearly people who are 
really sick of the Democrats who don't feel much attachment to either party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that somebody, I mean, I, I know this also from knocking on doors for Bernie in Iowa. I went to Iowa three times and I talked to tons of people in working class neighborhoods who uh, di- didn't have any love for the Democrats. They weren't Republicans, but they, they, they felt like the Democrats hadn't really uh, uh, delivered much for them or for anybody else in recent years. People, for example, said to me, like, I thought Obama was going to give everybody health care and then he didn't. And, you know, the actual story is a little more complicated than that, but that's how it's remembered in their minds, right? He mm-hmm. was going to give us health care and then he didn't. And so the, the fact that somebody like Bernie was running who has this clear level of independence from the Democratic Party, I mean, literally he was not a member of the Democratic Party and had an I after his name. I think that appealed to people in a way. Now, I, I think that the the way that you can do that, I mean, you don't have to be an independent like Bernie. Like, it's it's kind of a miracle that Bernie managed to pull off a political career uh, while <laughs> really? being the only independent uh, in the House at the time and now the only independent in the Senate. Um, but, like, you, you do have to, like, make it very clear to people that, like, you are very different from these other Democrats. I mean, AOC does that, even though she embraces the Democratic label. Mm-hmm. Like, she has gotten into these high-profile fights with Nancy Pelosi over time. She she has sparred with others in the Democratic Party, the sort of right wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and she has articulated an agenda that is clearly very distinct from what the rest of the party is doing. And I think that level of like really making sure that we stake out our territory as something that is very, very different from the Joe Bidens and the Kamala Harris's of the world is something mm-hmm. we have to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I wanted to pause for station ID one more time, and then we can sort of change in the same vein, but change gears a little bit. Um, you're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade, Jeff and Scott, uh, and we have Mike Utrecht on the show. Um, I wanted to sort of like ask you a little bit about how the, you know, groups like DSA or, and this is probably two different buckets even, groups like DSA and labor unions potentially uh, could and should be a part of uh, sort of a, a strategy of post-Bernie uh, organizing, you know, for leftists and socialists and, and for labor in general. And DS, I mean, I guess DSA would fall into labor, the socialists category pretty neatly. Yeah. So the, the, the question is just sort of like, how do we, yeah, how, how do these, we, uh... how do these kinds of organizations factor in to like a post-Bernie strategy, I suppose? Well, I guess I'll say one thing about sort of non-union organizations and then, mm-hmm. one, then something about unions. I mean, uh, I am very excited about this new socialist movement that we have mm-hmm. in the United States. I think that it is not something that should be uh, downplayed, uh, given how long the left has been in the wilderness. But we should be very, very sober about the fact that we are still an extremely tiny minority like yeah. i think the toehold that we've gotten matters but the toehold will really not get you that far unless you use it to continue advancing right? <laughs> right um so uh what we write about in the book we have a chapter in the book about case studies of mm-hmm. uh, electoral work in the east bay of california where megan my co-author is from chicago where i live and then in new york city uh, which i wrote and all of those, uh, or especially the, the Chicago and the New York example, are examples where if you really dig in, at first you're like, oh, wow, it's so great that these places have elected all of these socialists. Like DSA is just just waging a valiant fight on their own to, to mm-hmm. do stuff. Uh, but when you dig, dig into them, you find out that actually all of these candidates that come from various backgrounds with various kinds of uh, coalition partners in their 
elections. And so in Chicago, for example, uh, the, the, well, first of all, the whole territory of politics in Chicago has been reshaped over the last decade by the Chicago Teachers Union, which yeah. went on strike in 2012. I wrote a book about it called Strike for America. Great book. And they, thank you. Uh, and they have, uh, they've really reshaped the, the politics of this, this city uh, to the point where they are now the kind of anchor of, a, of the left-wing politics of this of this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of candidates who won uh, came from or were supported by uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, or really close allies to the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, and some of them, some of those six who we have on the city council, uh, you know, some of them are, are more DSA member than, you know, product of this community organization or this union. Mm-hmm. Others are more... CTU or United Working Families, which is the electoral arm of the CTU and other progressive unions, they're more UWF people than they are DSA members. And that's just like how it's going to be. The same is true as in New, is in New York. I mean, um, in New York just uh, elected a, a big slate of uh, various socialists who won mm-hmm. at various levels of local and state offices uh, and national offices from New York. Um, but, you know, all of those people, the same story. They all came out of community. They were, you know, tenant organizers. And they came out of different organizations, and, th- and that's going to be what organizing looks like from from you know for a, a very long time. Uh, and it's probably how it should look: is mm-hmm. that you know socialists play an important part of these coalitions, but we sh- we're not like the the, the big. We're, we we play a key role, but we're not like the players here. Like there are people who. Uh, know far more than we do about uh, about socialism, or I mean, excuse me, about uh, elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them have real roots in working class communities that we do not have uh, for various reasons which we can talk about. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that kind of like being in coalition and in many ways being the like left edge of th- this broad progressive coalition for many of these candidates is how things are going to be going forward. Uh, to the question about uh, the labor movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, historically, socialists have played really key roles in the labor movement, like some of the key roles in the labor movement uh, that for various historical reasons, including McCarthyism, uh, socialists were largely run out of the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so it's our task in, 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 to to really rebuild uh, the ties between socialists and, and, and the labor movement, because the labor movement is uh, the, the most important sort of organized, uh, you know, the working class, working of most important form of working class organization. That doesn't mean that unions are more important than everybody else or that, I don't know, that, that union organizing trumps every other kind of organizing. Uh, but it means that we, we need to like really be working very hard to like root ourselves in the labor movement and create a labor movement that fights not just for its own members, but can fight on behalf of of uh, the entire working class, and 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 like in a in a socialist perspective, also, I mean, if you're you know, if it's a worker-oriented perspective, then necessarily the organized institutions of workers are going to play a significant role in any kind of you know accumulation of power and any kind of kind of forward-looking strategy. So yeah, um, I, I sort of really um, think about what is the sort of like role that. Like, like, how do these, how do these, like, non-labor groups and how do these labor groups sort of interface with one another uh, as well? That's one of the things I kind of, like, am constantly going on, like, like going on in my brain about. Uh, I've, I, you know, I've engaged in a certain amount of that in my own experience in organizing um, and, you know, with various results. Um, but, I mean, I guess I wanted to pick your brain on that in, in, a, in a sense. Yeah, so on the one hand, 
we know that right now the socialist movement in the United States is not fully embedded in the working class of the United States. Like it's just an objective fact that many members of the Democratic Socialists of America uh, are, and on the whole, we're sort of whiter and better educated. Uh, we, we, we come from a higher uh, economic bracket. I, I think that's overstated sometimes, especially by people who hate socialism and want to see it fail. They're like, oh, you guys are just a bunch of white people and, and you know, rich white kids, which would be mm-hmm. uh, uh, news to the, the large number of non-rich, non-white people who are members of BSA. But mm-hmm. um, this is often how, how it's how it's described. Right, yeah. um, but uh, we have, I, I guess there's sort of two, two approaches to our labor movement work that are really important. I mean, one is just that socialists always have to be uh, on the front lines of like supporting workers who are in struggle, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, right now in Chicago, for example, there are over 5,000 nurses and other healthcare workers who are on strike at the University of Illinois Chicago hospitals. Uh, and there are DSA members who are doing uh, support, whether it's raising money uh, to support these uh, striking healthcare workers mm-hmm. or, you know, showing up on the picket line. All that stuff is is really essential work for socialists to do to show unions that that we actually like will put our money where our mouth is when it comes to uh, supporting working class yeah la- last october in, in uh, for the strike there was there was picket support and there was also uh abby showed me around and we actually got to pack lunches for the uh bread for ed uh over at the ue hall which is like which is just very very concrete support and like it, it's right, something yeah. that really kind of like builds these relationships between you know not just teachers unions uh, and um, like groups like DSA, for example, but it's also like it 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 brings positive public sort of um, attention as well, which which right, exactly. is good for everybody. You're talking about the Chicago Teachers Union strike from last Correct. year. Um, there's there's so many Chicago Teachers Union strikes that it's important <laughs> to uh, <laughs> note which one they are. Um, so yeah, that's that's crucial. And then on the other hand, uh, it is important for not just social is not just a to have a supportive role mm-hmm. of uh, unions when unions are doing good and brave and noble things, but also uh, for socialists to actually embed themselves in working class fights. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a tradition of this in the socialist movement. I mean, like the early years of communist party, for example, uh, communist party members, also the socialist party uh, were really the, some of the, the most important organizers on shop floors mm-hmm. uh, around the country. They weren't the only ones who were good organizers. This is often what's called the militant minority. Um, I wrote a, an academic article about this a couple mm-hmm. of years ago um, that, that ta- they, they played this really key role in you know, organizing uh, on the shop floor level. And then part of the, the point of McCarthyism was to purge those people from the labor movement. The radicals who were the best organizers, uh, who were the most militant, uh, who got their shops organized, who were really dedicated and brave, you know, would face down the cops who were trying to, you know, beat striking workers or whatever. Um, it was really important for them to get rid of those people. Uh, and so we have to rebuild that layer within the uh, labor movement today. Uh, now, there are people who tried to do that in the 60s and 70s, and that's the next book that I'm working on is a oh, kind cool. of oral histories of people who did that in the 60s and 70s. And some of them did it by like, you know, they were like, I don't know, PhD students who decided to drop out of the PhD and go get a steel mill job or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's noble, uh, but that's a pretty extreme <laughs> right. level of commitment. And also people in 2020, you know, young people who are members of DSA are not like on the fast track towards getting a job that's going to be, you know, cushy 
I mean, even if they're in a PhD program, it's not like they have some cushy tenure track job waiting for them. I mean, like we all know that our generation of people is pretty screwed when it comes to getting good jobs. Mm. Um, so it's not like a lot of people would be making some enormous sacrifice uh, to, you know, they're not, they're not giving up a tenure track professorship in order to uh, go become a high school teacher or something like that. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the professor, the professorial jobs are not open to them. And so I think people should be thinking about getting jobs as teachers, as healthcare workers in the logistics industry. I mean, in, in, there are a number of sort of strategic industries uh, where it would be uh, extremely useful to have socialists working uh, so that they could organize with their coworkers uh, to mm-hmm. potentially uh, you know, organize at work and maybe even change the, the tide of the American labor movement. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a bit too grandiose of me, but uh, <laughs> That's that's the that's the kind of dream, at least that that socialists uh, could become again that part of the militant minority that plays this really key role in strengthening the labor movement. Um, I also sort of like think about the the like way that because the way when I started teaching about you know five six years ago, uh, one of the first kind of questions that I like had was like okay how do i get involved with this union how do i you know get plugged in and all these other things and it was very sort of opaque and very very sort of um and i'm not trying to like say anything you know like bad about my local obviously um but but it, it, it's not always clear how to you know how to operate in a meeting like with robert's rules or how to like operate with you know things and i think it would be good it's good to sort of like have a sort of institutional support like in these kinds of you know non uh, you know these 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 uh, these socialists and leftists and, and community groups to sort of like build that kind of build that collective knowledge and and to to uh, support one another and I think that's I think that's fairly critical I don't know yeah I agree and and the best way I mean I've, we just talked about how there are sort of outside support roles that are crucial. But the best way to learn the kind of stuff that you're talking about mm-hmm. is is through actually being there as mm-hmm. a you know a rank and file participant in the mm-hmm. building of, of the labor movement. I mean, in some ways, it's sure. the most crucial task for us to uh, to to engage in. And uh, you know, people when we've gone on this book tour have asked me stuff like, um, you know, how do we how do we create more AOCs? Which is a good question, <laughs> right? Like we should have more AOCs. Um, but the Chicago example, uh, you know, Chicago didn't just get, as I said, these half a dozen socialist city council members out of thin air. It came from a, a, a context in the city, an environment in the city, a political environment that was changed through the work of this union. Mm-hmm. And the, the history of that happening, you know, started with just a handful, like a dozen teachers who were pissed off about their union not being a very good union getting together and deciding to change their union Mm -hmm. and then running for leadership and then going on strike and everything else that happened so i guess the the short formulation of this is if you want more aocs go organize a union Mm -hmm. because uh, unions have that potential a revitalized labor movement has that potential to uh, events you know enormous political shifts in a in a given political context Mm -hmm. So um, just to kind of like, ch- uh, let's do one more station ID and then we can uh, just do one more last little segment. So you listen to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Uh, Jeff and Scott with Mike Utrecht, uh, deputy editor at uh, Jacobin Magazine, also the author of the book um, Bigger Than Bernie, uh, how, we get, how We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, co-authored by, uh, with Megan Day. Um, and... I was sort of, we, we talked a little bit about this before in a general sense, some of the 
uh, and we can sort of contextualize in the in the broader, um, you know, way that the labor movement in America is going. Um, I'm thinking about you mentioned the 2012 and the um, 2019 strikes from. Uh, I'm sorry, was it 2010? It was 2010. Uh, 2012 was the strike. 2010 was 2010 was the takeover. Got yeah, exactly. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, anyway, we, we had those uh, strikes from um, the uh, Chicago Teacher Union. We also had multiple strikes in 2018 uh, across the country in the red states, uh, and then just recently we had uh, a couple of actions with nurses getting uh, large-scale recognition in North Carolina, and uh, also a broad uh, organized action taking place by. Uh, taxi drivers on the Brooklyn Bridge where they just stopped traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge and nobody can go anywhere in New York City. I guess, what is the, um, sort of like, there's a lot of energy and a lot of, um, uh, sort of, people are, people are feeling that right now things are not working out for working people and there's a lot of awareness around that. What do you do to sort of start building on that specific thing? Um, kind of in a general sense. I mean, it's not like you can pick out each individual situation, but what, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I clearly we're in a moment where, well, on the one hand, labor is weaker than it has been in mm-hmm. over 100 years. I mean, many metrics show this, whether it's uh, you know, recent strike levels, uh, the last last two years, notwithstanding, uh, but, you know, strike levels, unionization rates, I mean, it's all really low. Um, and, but clearly, there is a, a hunger out there uh, among average people uh, to, to, you know, there's, there's a sense that they are incredibly weak, that they are getting screwed, and that something needs to change about that, and that they are the ones who are going to have to take the action to make that mm-hmm. change. So I think we are at a really unique moment of opportunity for the labor movement. Um, I mean, you've seen it certainly during the COVID crisis, Mm -hmm. people across a range of different industries. I mean, I mentioned that the worker that the healthcare workers at the University of Illinois, Chicago are on strike right now. Yeah, Uh, I went on the picket line the other day and found out that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was not enough PPE for these nurses in a a university hospital system. (laughs) Uh, And over 200 people got covid and two workers died from covid Mm -hmm. um so you know we're really talking life or death Mm -hmm. situations here the dsa has uh, a project called the emergency workplace organizing committee that is about responding to that real crisis that workers all over are facing uh, and is trying to help workers organize in whatever way it makes sense in their organization which is a pretty brilliant organizing Mm -hmm. strategy um, from my perspective um but uh, th- but you know beyond that, even before the pandemic happened, it was clear that people were were ready for some kind of uh, action. I mean, you know, the teacher strike. Who could have predicted that the teacher strike wave throughout, especially the red states, mm-hmm. would have happened? But clearly, there's an enormous sentiment out there, and so uh, it, it shows the the kind of opportunity that uh, people who are organizers can have in in at a time when. People really sense that there's something very wrong at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also we see, whether it's Chicago or the teacher strike wave or whatever, that when workers or the Brooklyn, the, the cab drivers who are stopping the Brooklyn Bridge, like when workers take action, uh, you know, this is a thing that socialists have, you know, said for a very long time uh, since Karl Marx, <laughs> when socialists take or when workers take action, they grind things to a halt and they can really 
events a sea change in the politics of a city or a state or a country. Uh, so there, there are enormous opportunities for us out there uh, that should be seized. Uh, and seizing those opportunities is the only way we're really going to create a better world. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's great that people subscribe to my magazine and read a socialist magazine. It's great that the uh, DSA is the largest socialist organization in the country. But like what, what you know, the sine qua non of all of this stuff is the revitalization of the uh, of the American labor movement that that mm-hmm. has to happen for us to win all of these other kinds of changes that we want to see in the country right and yeah if uh labor movements don't come back we're just gonna die in uh elon musk's space mine or whatever <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna leave us on a burning earth while we the ships that workers just built for him just like yeah, while the yeah. earth burns <laughs> we're, just, we're just gonna be waving at him <laughs> yeah. Bye, I mean, buddy. yeah i mean like, we're, we're joking a little bit but um but like yeah no profit like all profit is essentially it has to go through workers for it to be produced that's like a necessary thing and and that's something that uh we kind of have to keep beating that drum and, and start organizing around to be you know to be 100 percent clear and um you know even in the context of a turn to covid who, which unions or which locations specifically for schools I, I my brain is i'm obsessed with this because uh, uh i'm a teacher myself um, Chicago Teachers Union, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, uh, threatened to go on strike, uh, and they were the ones that got the best results and the most concessions from their school systems um, because they were the ones that were positioned to actually do something. And, and, and you know, places that were, you know, thinking about, unfortunately, New York City and, and places like where I live, you know, they didn't really have an aggressive orientation. Uh, they weren't able to or willing to you know put together a credible threat of a strike so then what do they do they're going back to school you know fully in person not remotely and they're going to have to be um putting themselves their kids and their entire communities in danger of the continued spread of this i mean pandemic it's horrible so i mean we need to make uh uh-huh I said, and then they'll be seeing uh like how good chicago teachers have and be like man why do i have it so good over there yeah well, you know, there's a, the famous slogan, the cause of labor is the hope of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not just a, like a, a noble sentiment. It's about how workers can fight for everybody. Workers mm-hmm. can be the hope of the world. Uh, and that's certainly the case. Yeah, I mean, Chicago and L.A., uh, you know, threatening a strike and, and a credible strike. Right. It wasn't just like empty words. It was like mm-hmm. the, these both of these unions had just recently pulled off. Uh, really massive Amazing. strikes that had widespread public support, and that's why they were able to get the goods. And um, New York has—we've uh, published a lot in Jacobin about how that's not the case in New York, and you can sort of see the proof in the pudding in the in the uh, insanely botched rollout of reopening schools that they're that they're doing. So uh, yeah, the, the, this is the, the cause of labor is still the hope of the world, and those mm-hmm. of us who are inspired by. The Bernie movement and this upsurge in left-wing politics should really uh, make rebuilding that cause of labor are, are one of our key tasks. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is that Star Trek meme that goes around of uh, of O'Brien where he's standing there and he said, he was more than a hero. He was a union man. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh at that stuff, uh, but, you know, th- there, that's, it, there's some real truth to it. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. that is it's what the like... labor movement is all about, right? It's like making people who are made to feel every day like they are small and insignificant and don't matter. Uh, you know, you're just a cog in the in the machine. You're just another teacher. You're just another uh, factory worker, just helping you know uh, 
crank out more widgets. But mm-hmm. the, the whole idea of, of the labor movement is that like, no, you actually have the power along with your coworkers uh, to shut down your whole workplace, shut down society, make everything screech to a halt and say, no, we're doing this the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and, and my fellow workers and, and everybody else in society is being disrespected here. And we're going to stop working mm-hmm. and show you how important we actually are to this process uh, to make you change the, how you're, how you're organizing our society. Uh, so, you know, that's the, the, to be a, as, as somebody once said, you know, working class hero is something to be. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. that's what the labor movement is all about, right? That heroism of, of actual average workers uh, getting together with their coworkers and and changing the world. Right? I mean, I think unions are very cool in that, like, people are constantly at work every single day, like trying to go to the bathroom a little bit longer or whatever, just to get through the day. And like, they just constantly are always like, man, I wish I could just tell my boss, like, go to hell and like how do you do that you get in the union you tell your boss to go to hell like like uh what is that oh man i had it or you can even put yourself or you can even just put yourself on a a playing field where you can negotiate with an actual with actual power it's the the thing yeah and like uh mm -hmm. they didn't have unions in the in the 80s and 90s so what did they do they made a bunch of bad indie movies about guys who just stopped working for their boss or whatever Mm -hmm. like and then just like root for Stone Cold Steve Austin because he beat up his boss every day on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and and to step on potentially at the peril of stepping on one of Scott's favorite trap cards, there's the uh. um, there's a sense that there, or the, the the sort of like language and rhetoric of specifically like a lot of this return to opening up the economy, you know, as they want to put it, um, is is sort of like based in these almost. Um, you know these like natural laws and realities like we ha- we must open the economy otherwise we just like people will starve and people will die there's nothing that we can do other than that and it's almost like uh, uh like defining reality in sort of like rhetorical terms you know of this is something that can't be prevented and it has to, and, and it, it sort of like takes all of the power out of the hands of workers and it just assumes the power just lies within whoever's you know whoever the bosses and the politicians and whatever right i mean that's the real so many people can't i i i worry that people um you know have taken to the streets to you know these these reopen protests that we saw especially during the summer Mm -hmm. i mean Obviously, some of those people are inc- incredibly noxious reactionaries, yeah. and in some cases, like actual open fascists. But uh, they they tap into the sense that like we can either reopen the economy or we can all starve to death. And mm-hmm. like you said, that those are the only yeah. uh, two options. And part of the reason why they can make that case is that we don't have an actual left wing party that is saying no. We're going to pay everybody to stay home and and you know continue the flow of stimulus checks and robust mm-hmm. robust unemployment benefits uh when you don't have that then under capitalism if you don't get to go to work then you really do die i mean mm-hmm. that's like that that's how the system works mm-hmm. um so like we we need an alternative to that either reopen the economy or or starve to death i mean that doesn't have to be uh the only options um but unfortunately with, with a lackluster democratic party and a like foaming at the mouth uh, party of death from the Republicans. <laughs> right. Those are the only options that have seen on the table. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks thanks a lot for joining us, Micah. You're also the host of a show called um, The Vast Majority, which I've listened to uh, quite a bit. Uh, talk a little bit about that and then we can, uh, where we can listen to that. And uh, yeah. 
So Jackman has a channel called Jackman Radio where we host a number of podcasts. Uh, the Dig by Dan Denver, Behind the News by Doug Henwood, uh, Jackman Radio with Susie Weissman, uh, several other podcasts and mine is one of them. And I try to, although lately I've been failing at this, I try to just uh, do sort of bite-sized conversations, you know, 30, 45-minute conversations uh, with people uh, about articles they've written in Jacobin or our sister uh, scholarly journal Catalyst. I've mm -hmm. also interviewed lots of people who have run for office, uh, you know, in Texas and in West Virginia and in New York City, all over the place. And uh, yeah, you can subscribe at uh, Jacobin Radio on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your uh, podcast. I started it because, um, well, maybe for one thing, because I was tired of just editing written words all day. Uh, <laughs> but also, I just kind of realized that uh, it's it's not like uh, people, you know, if, if Jacobin puts out an article, they'll read the article and then that same person will also listen to a podcast. Like there's actually a distinct audience uh, that mm -hmm. does uh, listen to podcasts probably will never read a Jackman article article especially a, a, you know a five or six thousand word Jackman article mm -hmm. or something so I figured I'll just give people a sort of audio version of it in the form of a conversation mm -hmm. and uh, it seems to be working out pretty well so yeah the the, the channel is called Jacobin radio mm -hmm. all right well thanks so much Micah um, yeah check check out that um, check out that show check um, out bigger than Bernie. Uh, if you're interested, and uh, appreciate it, buddy. Have a good day. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Of course. Uh, you can listen to Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday on WHIV-FM. You can also um, check out our website, goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, this is WHIV-LP New Orleans, 102.3. Bye, everybody. Love you. Thanks, man. Oh. Thanks, man. Really do appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, um, I'm interested in that other book that you you started talking about. Uh, and uh, so what what's the subject of it? Like, what's the um So premise? there were a number of people who industrialized, as they called it, mm -hmm. like got jobs uh, with the intention. <laughs>